As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Coming up, Patrick Boylan joins us to look at what's going wrong at Everton after another defeat at the weekend ahead of the Merseyside Derby on Wednesday. We'll discuss the future of Ferran Torres at Manchester City and why he's thinking about a move in the January window. So our City writer Sam Lee will join us. And Ralph Rangnick has been confirmed as Manchester United's interim manager. David Ornstein broke the story on The Athletic last week, so he'll bring us the latest, whilst Adam Crafton will share some of the details from his piece on United's five-year pursuit of Maurizio Pochettino. So after defeat at Brentford, Everton are winless in seven Premier League games. Uh, they've drawn two and lost five of those. That's their longest such run since April 2016 under Roberto Martinez. The Athletics' Patrick Boyland was at the game yesterday and joins us now. It seems a very frustrated fan base, Patrick. Yeah, I think frustration is the is the, is the right word here. My opening to the, the match piece from Brentford, it feels like that frustration that's been building now probably since Fahad Nashiri joined the club in 2016. That frustration started to spill over into something altogether more toxic, manifesting in, in booze, in kind of abusive players and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's fair to say the club's not in a good place right now. I know the anger was directed at the players yesterday after the game, but in many ways, is the anger directed at everybody involved at the club? I think we have to be careful here because when you see the videos on social media of fans going for the players you could get the impression wrongly that this is just about effort, work rate, application on the pitch from a group of underperforming players. When in actual fact, before the game against Brentford, there was a banner in the away end talking about how the club needs to adhere, the board of directors needs to adhere to the to the club's kind of famous old motto, nothing but the best is good enough. There is a big picture here, and I think we almost do that a disservice when we talk about individual performances on the pitch. So when I, when I see that off the top of my head, a, a 20 year old rookie and Anthony Gordon being kind of quite heavily slated by fans in the away end, I understand the frustrations of the fans, but he is not the issue. The issue goes back to years and years of mismanagement, 500 million pounds since Farhad Mashiri came in in 2016, 
with little yield. And I didn't see a real difference in quality between what Everton were doing and what Brentford were doing. Brentford, a newly promoted side, what those two, two sides were doing on Sunday. So I think we have to look big picture. We have to look at strategy and decision-making now over an extended period of time. And to just direct that at the players, let's key figures of the club off the hook, you would say. Four of uh, Everton's next five games, Arsenal, uh, Liverpool, Chelsea and Leicester uh, coming up for Everton. It feels like it might get worse before it gets better. I mean, how close are Calvert-Lewin or Richarlison to getting back into it for them? Because, I mean, clearly the goals are the massive issue and Solomon Rondon not scoring goals. It feels like this is a situation that can only really be turned around by results. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's it. I, I didn't actually see a lack of application from the players on Sunday. What I saw more than anything else was just a fundamental lack of quality. This is about quality. It's about creativity. Final ball, final pass, final shot. Uh, Richarlison will come back on Wednesday. He was just suspended for the game against Brentford after picking up five bookings. But he's had his own injury problems. Calvert-Lewin's back on the grass doing light training. Wednesday will probably come too soon unless they want to take a massive risk with him. But we are approaching the point where the manager probably needs to start taking some calculated risks. I mean, Abdoulaye Ducore started on, on Sunday against Brentford when he was never going to be 100%. Damari Gray came off the bench. He, he wasn't fully fit, in my opinion. So the cavalry, so to speak, will arrive. My issue is where Everton will be when they return. They're already on a run of, of seven games without a win. The last time, as as Chapter said earlier, the last time that happened was 2016, and that run preceded Roberto Martinez's dismissal. So it, it's it's altogether possible that um, things do get worse before they get better. The fixture list in December is horrific, as you, as you point out, starting with the Merseyside derby. And I don't think you can bank on players coming back in after long absences and hitting the ground running anyway. So when everybody's fit, this is probably a top 10 side as a starting 11 there or thereabouts. But for me, the big issue is the disparity between a Calvert-Lewin and a Rondon or a Damari Gray and and one of the youngsters that's been put into the firing line. I think there Everton go from maybe a top 10 first 11 to a squad that barely looks Premier League standard in places when, when there are a few injuries. Where does Benitez fit? In, in all of this and I've got lots of friends and family who are Evertonians I've tried to gauge whether the mood has turned on Benitez this was before yesterday's game Patrick and the feeling I got from talking to them was it hasn't you know they're not on his back at the moment there are certain decisions which they find baffling Rondon is a, is a prime example is a prime example of that but in all of this, some of the responsibility has to come down to Benitez. Yeah, I, I don't think he's entirely blameless. What, what I would say is that he's been dealt a terrible hand by all accounts. I mean, he, even Sam Allardyce, in his six months in charge, he was given the best part of £50 million to spend on Jenk Tosin and Theo Walcott. That's not taking into account astronomical wages for those two guys. Rafa Benitez, by contrast, had £1.7 million over the summer because the club is so close to FFP red lines. He's then had to contend with a succession of injuries and not just injuries to to any players, but I'd argue Everton's core. You're looking at Yerry Mina, the best centre-back, Ducore, Richarlison, Calvert-Lewin. These are Everton's best players. And he's blamed their head of medical for that? He, in part, has blamed the head of medical for that. I mean, Danny Donachie, the guy you're referring to, has now left the club after a gardening leave of two to three weeks, we believe. I think Benitez got the job on the basis of interviewing really well. 
and he performed a review of all the club's footballing operations over the last couple of years. Our understanding is that he came in and in those interviews said, this I'm going to bring the, the, the team on on the pitch, but also you're getting too many injuries and too many re-injuries, I, I setbacks off it. So I would say that probably Danny Donaghy always had a target on his head. We know that Rafa comes into clubs and brings in his own men, particularly in medical departments. That happened at Liverpool. It happened at Newcastle. So Danny Donaghy started to be squeezed by appointments of, of guys that Rafa has worked with before. And I think it just reached a point where they were picking up injuries again. So tensions came to a head. And I, I think this could have been predicted months ago, to be honest. I think it was always going to happen. But the injuries have not helped. And going back to, to Benitez and, and everything that he's done, I, I think fans now are getting on his back a bit over some of the selections. They see him trying the same approach that hasn't worked now for a number of months. And of course, it's getting the same results. It leads to the same conclusion. What they would like to see is, for example, there were three strikers on the bench on Sunday, none of whom got on the pitch. Despite the fact Everton were chasing a game, they needed a goal desperately ahead of a, a crucial run of fixtures. I think they would like to see something different and a sign maybe that the manager is learning lessons. At the moment, I think the frustration is he probably looks a little bit stubborn and a little bit you know, kind of intransigent, unwilling almost to, to change approach. And that may well be needed, to be honest, if, if Everton were to get out of this mess. Something Jamie Carragher said a few years ago, I think he called Benitez the most political manager that, that he'd worked under. And I mean, just thinking about that game yesterday where you've got three strikers on the bench and he's not bringing one on. Maybe this is lending too much meaning to it, but it's that Benitez looking to January, making clear, you know, I don't fancy these guys who are on the bench who might be able to get me a goal and we're going to need to get someone in. Obviously in the summer, Everton were, were far more measured than what they've been in the, part, in the past under Mashiri because of FFP. But, you know, I think Benitez might be coming to the realisation that, yeah, okay, he, made a, he got picked up a couple of smart, cheaper signings, players that he knew in the summer, but probably needs an injection of something in, in January. He absolutely does. And there are a number of positions, a number of key core positions that they need to strengthen. I think he, he came to the realisation over the summer that he wasn't going to be able, he wasn't going to be able to go as far as he would have liked in the overhaul, that there, there does need to be a substantial overhaul here, but that 1.7 million doesn't get you very far at all. I mean, bear, bear in mind, Everton signed five players over the summer, two of whom were second and third choice goalkeepers. Um, so this does have to be a gradual process. The problem is he probably doesn't get the leeway and the time to implement those changes, particularly not with, with supporters. I think the beauty of Carlo Ancelotti's appointment was that everybody was so delighted and so appreciative of the fact that Ancelotti was at the club initially. It felt like a real coup for Everton that he was given probably more leeway than he should have been. Uh, even when things were going very badly on the pitch. Benitez doesn't get any of that. And that, in part, is because of his, his his history with Liverpool Football Club, obviously. But also now some of the decisions that he's making on the pitch. So I think, Adam, to your point, he is very political and we know that. It's quite clear he doesn't fancy the guys that are on the bench. One of those is Jenk Tosin, who Everton have tried to sell now for three or four windows. He'll be available again in January. The other two are... Ellis Sims and Lewis Dobbin, young strikers from the under-23s, these are not great options. It has to be said, they're really not great options. And there's an argument Everton shouldn't have to rely on 19 and 20-year-olds to dig them out of this mess. 
but I think he could be. I think there are easy wins here if he if he was to give a Dobbin or a Sims twenty minutes here or there. If he was to maybe take Rondon out of the firing line and a Wobi out of the firing line. I don't think you get the response that you're getting right now from supporters. So I, I, I don't think we can blame Benitez kind of completely for what we're seeing now. Is he blameless, though? Absolutely not. Patrick, thank you very much for coming on. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move on to Manchester City because uh, Pep Guardiola was full of praise for their ground staff yesterday for making the pitch playable during their win against West Ham after uh, it snowed here in Manchester over the weekend. Sam Lee braved the cold for the Athletic joins us now. The, the ground staff, presumably, the, the only people who haven't been praised at Manchester City o- over this season. Everybody else has got some praise at some point. Yeah, it's funny, actually. I saw a tweet from, I think it was Adam Hurry this morning saying, from Pep's quote, he couldn't work out if he was genuinely praising them or criticising them for like conspiring against City because with Pep, you can never be sure <laughs> if he's being sarcastic or not. And the thing is, they have had a few, I wouldn't say run-ins, they wouldn't quite say tension, but you know, Guardiola's like, the grass should be this length and they're like, it's Manchester, it can't it can't be that short. You know, so th- there's always been a bit of a back and forth about the state of the pitch, but they're on the same page yesterday, yeah. Give us some of their uh, performances in recent weeks. It does seem odd that we spent so much of the summer talking about their need for a striker, doesn't it? Um, not really, because I'm sure there'll be a time again when we're talking about it again. Um, every after every game or every game that goes particularly well, the 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 broadcast interview will kick off with, "Oh, so you don't need a striker after all?" And Guardiola, he, Guardiola's <laughs> like physically sick of it, <laughs> but he will say, "But he'll say, look, you know, we'll lose a game in a couple of weeks or we'll draw, and you'll ask me the same thing: Do you need a striker?" And that's basically it this season. You talk about those great performances. And if you think about the Manchester derby, which, you know, everybody knows now it was just so dominant, wasn't it? Um, you know, some City fans, maybe some neutrals as well, thought in the second half could really go for this and make it 5-0 like the Liverpool game was. And Guardiola was asked that after the game. And he said, no, we needed more passes, first of all, you know, to, to just stop United counter-attacking. But he said... The way we play, we maybe wouldn't create a load of chances, but the ones we would create would be great chances to score. And that's how they play. That's how they play all season. But the thing is, those great chances, they don't always take them. So maybe there'll be a game where they miss those chances. The other team score from a set piece and we're saying, oh, if they had a striker. But ultimately, the performance will be more or less the same as it was against United. It's just, it's going to come down to those fine margins, really. Talk to us about Ferran Torres then, who has been used as a striker by Pep Guardiola. And, and it strikes me that he is just, there always has to be one individual at City who might be unhappy and on the move. We've seen it with, with set of, you know, Emirate, John Stones, Emirate Laporte, uh, Bernardo Silva's probably the prime example. We're now being told that Ferran Torres is, uh, you know, according to your line on the Athletic, that he might be the next one to leave. But equally, you could see him coming back in and being rehabilitated, for want of a better word, in the same way that Stones was, Laporte was, Bernardo Silva is at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, the, the thing with this is in Barcelona, the, the first 
response anybody's going to have, and City fans in particular, because Barca were linked with like three or four City players and something, including like Ilkay Gundogan. You just think, how's that ever going to work? Sterling as well, Sam. Yeah, Sterling as well recently. So City fans are just uh, are particularly saying, well, they've got no money. How's this ever going to work? And that is, you know, that is one of those things. But people obviously they take that out really on the people who write the story. It's like, well, I know they've got no money either. But this is the situation. Like, but this is the conversation that I had when I had this conversation with the people around Torres that, you know, said, well, this, this is what's happening. And I was like, well, obviously Barcelona got no money, so that's one part of it. How, they, how is that going to work? But the other thing was, I said, I think it was word for word, I was like, I can imagine a situation in February, let's say he doesn't go and City don't sign a striker. He'll be back playing as a number nine because they haven't got one and he'll be in the team and then he'll be happy. So that's the thing. As you were saying, there's always seems to be players around City who aren't happy. There's kind of a sliding scale. You know, there's obviously players aren't happy when they don't play. That's just a fact. But then it goes towards, are they really kicking off? Do they really want to go? And the way this has been painted, and maybe this was like the friendly media version, but as far as I can understand it, he's not desperate to leave because he realises he's got a good gig. He's getting an, enough games for Man City. But fundamentally, he wants more. And whether he's going to get more at City or more at Barca, that's what he wants. But he sees the way this opportunity by people at Barca has been presented to him is new project. Xavi's an exciting new manager. We're all going to get behind him. You're going to be the striker. You'll play a lot. Do you want to come? And he's like, oh, actually, that sounds pretty good. And obviously being young and Spanish and the big, funnily enough, on Friday, I'm going on a bit now, but on Friday, before this came onto my radar, I was speaking to somebody who knows some of the Spanish players. And I was like, what do they think? about the two big Spanish clubs. Because again, us on the outside, we'd probably say, okay, they're nice places to live, but they're not the guarantees of winning the Champions League anymore, especially compared to somebody like City. You'd imagine being a few more finals under Guardiola at least. And he, was, he said, well, one of them at least, since yeah, they fully appreciate that City are, you know, in the playing in the best league in the world and they're one of the best teams in that. And you know, there's no real reason to go anywhere else. But obviously for Torres, there's still that pull. Also, um, Barcelona are looking for wide, wide forwards um, in January. It's the one thing that Xavi has come in and agents who are working with the club have been told, you know, very clearly the thing that Xavi keeps, keeps going on about is I want wingers. I'm obsessed with wingers in much the same way as Pep's built Manchester City's team with real width. The profile of winger that was described to me was a, a sort of a Raheem Sterling, Kingsley Coman style winger. Fantar is probably a bit different to that. Can play more inside. It's weird with Torres because we've, we've sort of seen glimpses of him at City and some really exciting glimpses of him as well. I remember being at a game, I think it was this, the year before he left Valencia actually against Barcelona. Valencia won 2-0 and Torres was unbelievable that day. Like unbelievable. And I remember coming away and sa- I said to someone that day, that was the best performance I've seen from a player of that age live in a stadium. He was so good. There has been this huge excitement around him in Spain for quite a long time. And he's a big part of the Spanish national team as well. And it's a Spanish national team that don't have that many options up front at the moment that you would class as world, you know, world-class. Morata plays a lot still. So I think ahead of the World Cup, he'll be looking at it and thinking, I need to be playing football every week. Um, and I need to be you know, a really significant part of a team and you know and there's no better way to do that as a Spanish player than by playing for Real Madrid or Barcelona yeah he knows as well as City like the rest of us he's, he's expecting City to sign a, a big name striker either in January or the summer so his chances are going to be even further reduced that's what yeah. he's thinking great players have left you know Leroy Sane in the end left, left City you know sometimes there are really good players that just can't get in every week at Man City anymore yeah. and, and that's how good City have become 
Not many, though. No. I said great players. I, I meant great player. <laughs> I mean, it would have been it would have been different in the summer, to be fair. Yeah. But with the, the financial situation around the top clubs, I think you know if Juventus, Real Madrid in particular, had a bit more money around, you know, I think Bernardo probably would have gone. Um, he, he nearly went to Barca the year before. Laporte may well have gone. Maybe Jesus. Maybe maybe even Sterling. You know, if there was more money floating around, there might have been. But you're right. So far, it is only really Sane. But this is. It's just a fact, you know, if you've got so many good players, you can't keep them all happy. The best way is to just rotate as much as they can. And in that sense, Guardiola does do as much as he can, but some players just want to play more. The point you make, Chappers, is right, though, in terms of City in, in, the, in the Abu Dhabi era have not lost players they don't want to lose as a general rule. Like that just does not happen really to, to Manchester City. And I imagine with Torres, it's a bit like, well, we'd love to keep him if we can, keep developing him. But if he kicks up a fuss, they'll probably... You know, let's. It's more of a let's see. It, I mean, the big unanswerable is how on earth do, Bar- do Barcelona finance this? Yeah. Um, and I put, you know, I put that to someone uh, close to Xavi a couple of weeks ago, and he was just like, "Well, you know, they're going to be creative um, in in their solutions." <laughs> and you know, I mean, creative. I know Xavi's a creative manager, but that might be pushing it a bit if they're looking to actually sign players rather than loan players in January. The final thing on this, which is just the wider, uh, wider thing of 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 how a squad is managed so much. I think it's really interesting. You know, after I was doing the radio last week, after Liverpool beat Porto the same night as City beat Paris Saint-Germain, I think, wasn't yeah, it? They were, yeah. they were the best, yeah. Uh, and we had this discussion then, you know, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain got so got a lot of praise after Wednesday night's game for Liverpool against Porto. And we spoke briefly about how he'd had this run in the side of two or three, four games and how that was important for him. He was then left out again at, at the weekend when when they played Southampton. The difference I always seem to think with Guardiola as opposed to Klopp is if you're having a good run and playing well, you're not often rotated, are you? Yeah, I think that, that's fair to say. I mean, you might be you might be kept out. I'm thinking back to last season when there was Carabao Cup games, Champions League games, every midweek. So Guardiola was like, well, I've got so many players. I'll just make eight changes. This is the midweek team. And then we'll go back to the Premier League team. And the Premier League team was basically the first choice. And I think if you're if you're one of his players, you're happier to be in that team because you know that that's the one he trusts the most. But yeah, he said at the start of this season, if you're playing well, you're staying in the team. So he went, I think we was asked about Gabriel Jesus playing on the right wing. But he said, Laporte, for example, he's playing really well. So I can tell you right now, he's going to play next weekend. And yeah, it is it is as simple as that. And then you had the situation where Laporte wasn't playing well last year. Stones came in, played really well, didn't get dropped. Laporte wasn't happy, wanted to go. This season, he didn't go. He came back. Stones was injured, played really well. Laporte in the team. Stones is out. It's just it's as simple as that. It is it is a meritocracy really. But he does have to make those changes for the other games purely to keep people happy. Riyad Mahrez has started every Champions League game this season. I think he's started two or three Premier League games out of thirteen, fourteen. Sam, thank you. Thanks very much, guys. See you soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, 
courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobeUltra.com courtside to learn more. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. So the big exclusive last week on The Athletic was, of course, the news that Manchester United have agreed to deal to make Ralph Rangnick the interim manager until the end of the season. Uh, one of the authors of the story was David Ornstein. David, with us now, and United have made it official today, David. Yeah, so we know that Ralph Rangnick is now formally Manchester United's interim manager. Um, having broken the story last week, there was the obvious expectation that this was coming. It was just about when, and they needed to get the contracts done and dusted. There's a lot more complication than would meet the eye now, especially with entry requirements to the UK, the GBE, which could cause an issue with his backroom staff, but let's see how that develops in the coming days. His work permits, which may prevent him from managing for the uh, the first game this week uh, against Arsenal, he may have to wait until Sunday's match against Crystal Palace to be on the touchline. There's little bits around COVID testing and that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's now done and dusted and signed, sealed and delivered. And this whole deal was done without an agent? Yeah, it was. We explained this in my Monday column that contrary to some suggestions. Ralph Raniak did this deal on his own. I'm sure there would have been a lawyer or something involved, but there was no agent, which is pretty surprising for a deal of this magnitude or profile. Um, I'm sure many agents would have wanted to be involved in it. And Ralph Raniak has worked with agents in the past, like most people at his level have, but not on this occasion. And that would have been... Um, something Manchester United, I'm sure, would have been pleased to have done. It probably saved them a bit of money. And it actually taps into something a bit deeper, and that's control. Ralph Raniak likes to be in control of his own destiny, and that could be a developing theme at Manchester United because, of course, the hierarchy there, as we've talked about on here before, uh, the likes of Ed Woodward, Matt Judge, um, Richard Arnold, Joel Glazer, they appear to want to retain all the power to themselves. And they've now employed somebody that likes to exert his own authority at all levels of a club. So it presents a very interesting dynamic. And there will be many people listening to this who will be urging United to uh, give Ranjik the control that he craves. Important as well that I think over the last few years, United have been accused at different times of leaning too heavily on the advice of agents, a couple of agents in particular, sort of George Mendes, Mino Raiola, for recommendations and, you know, to get signings in or managerial appointments or whatever. So I think, you know, in terms of just United showing a bit of independent thinking, I think is pretty good because they're also, you know, certainly Mendes was offering, you know, was presenting options and checking in to see if he could help in any way, um, as you'd expect. So yeah, Ragnick, I think, that, you know, they're putting significant trust in him and he's clearly also quite, 
a good, you know, quite a good agent for himself in that it seemingly has managed to negotiate himself a two-year consultancy gig as well. It was a, a pretty slick and discreet process, and that was probably helped by the fact that they were just talking directly to Ranyik. Um, we said on here that John Murta was leading the charge in bringing Ranyik to the club, and we've also learned that Edward Wood was the kind of driver behind giving him the extra two years consultancy. That's a crucial part of this deal following the six-month role as uh, interim manager. So, yeah, actually, I think United have done okay out of this. And we'll come on, won't we, to talk about what level of involvement he had in the Chelsea draw on Sunday. He had none, as far as 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 I'm aware. He had absolutely none. Exactly. There were certain pundits and commentators who thought he stamped his mark on United's team at Stamford Bridge, but that wasn't the case. He's had no communication with anybody in the squad, playing-wise or staff-wise, just the executive-level personnel. Uh, He watched the match on television in Germany. He didn't want to interfere in proceedings so far, so Michael Carrick was being genuine when he said that. But of course, he will have been across videos and data like you wouldn't believe to plan his tenure, and uh, that's now about to get going. Do you think, Adam, Ranić has already said who he wants to replace him in the summer? Or is that going to be more of a process between now and then? I think two things on that. One, we don't know that he will be influencing that decision. It may be that, you know, as it goes along that he does. I don't think there's that many candidates for the summer is the first thing. You know, I think you Manchester United, there's only so many people in the world who who you would consider to have the stature, reputation, talent to, to manage you. So I would still be very surprised if it's not one of Pochettino or Ten Hag um, in the summer. But clearly, Rangnick's continued presence at the club may become a significant factor. And I I would imagine that the extent of his say in that process may, rightly or wrongly, depend on the results he gets as as coach, because that's kind of the way that football and particularly Manchester United work in terms of being a bit reactive. If Ralph Rangnick comes in and does fantastically well, you can imagine the club listening to absolutely everything he says and advises. If he comes in and tanks, by the middle of January, then I imagine that consultancy gig will become, you know, you're in the shadows, we'll take a bit of advice on academy development and progression and things like that. But in terms of selecting the first team manager, then we'll take care of that ourselves. So it's a bit TBC on that. Like I said, I'd still be, I'd be staggered if it wasn't one of Pochettino or Ten Hag come the summer. On that, Adam, if Mm. he does have a significant say in the selection process or even gives his opinion or stays on in the consultancy role and is deeply involved in it. Somebody said to me that is bad news for Pochettino, not because Ranić might not like him, but because Ranić will reach to the best possible candidate in world or European football. And that might not be the obvious names that everybody's talking about. Uh, there are a couple of images of him with all the his alumni on a whiteboard in the background. And, and there will be coaches that he may prefer over the um, touted candidates. Quite possible. If that was the case, then surely he would be going in as, you know, with a view to becoming sporting director, right? Which yeah. which he doesn't appear to be. I mean, they still have, there's a lot of people involved now at, Man- at Manchester United because you've got the football director in John Murtier, you've got the technical director, secretary, assistant manager, Darren Fletcher, um, as of yesterday, seems to be doing a lot on the touchline. And then you've, you've got Richard Arnold, Ed Woodward still there. So there's a lot of different people who seem to have 
be involved and I'm sure will have their own opinion. Now, it may be that Man United have decided to wait until the end of the season because they have specific target in mind who is more available at the end of the season. Or it could be, we really don't know what we want. And we're going to take a look at the market, listen to lots of different people. Let's hear lots of different cases. And that's where, if that's the scenario, then I think that's where Rangnick's voice could become more significant. And there could, of course, be an appointment of, of Pochettino, mm. Ten Hag, Rogers, the the ones we're hearing about, and Manchester United have never claimed not to have ad- admiration mm. for those, in particular Pochettino. However, I wonder if and how much damage may have been done by the noise around Pochettino. It certainly is a talking point among contacts of mine that it might not play into his hands whoever was responsible for it come decision time. Following Ole Gunnar sacking, there was a huge amount of stories in relation to Pochettino wants to join Man United, he wants to leave Paris Saint-Germain, and not only does he want to do that at some point, he, he was prepared to do that in the middle of the season, according to a lot of reports. If that was true, there was two issues with that. One, Manchester United weren't prepared to buy him out for you know, the fee that would, have been, that, that would have been necessary. But more to the point, PSG weren't prepared to lose him in the middle of the season. You ended up with this with a huge amount of noise and it felt like someone somewhere was trying to make something happen in the middle of all of that. I don't know who, I don't know who that would have been, but certainly, you know, PSG's position was pretty clear in that we don't want to lose a manager in the middle of the season. It's more hassle than it's worth. You know, I'm sure there's probably a figure that United could have put on the table that would have brought PSG in to listen. And there may be some United supporters who feel like, well, if you do want Pochettino in the summer and PSG want £15 million, then just get it done, get your manager in and, and start building. But it seems like it was all a bit more complicated than that. And we saw with, you know, with the Mbappe-Real Madrid situation in the summer, where Real Madrid were, they were saying, prepared to spend up to you know, €180 million. Euros. PSG could lose Mbappe for nothing the following year. And PSG still weren't prepared to do that because essentially their pride and, and focus was, we want Mbappe for another year. And if they decide they don't want to do something, they're pretty set on not doing something. And you know, whatever people may think of you know, Qatar, the Qatari regime that's doing the World Cup or the, the Qatari ownership of PSG, the one thing they've shown over the past decade is they're pretty single-minded. And we will leave it there. David, thank you. Adam, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. See you soon, guys. That's it. Thanks very much for listening. I'm back on Thursday for the Business of Sport podcast with Matt Slater. The Athletic.